Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For me, one of the highlights of any trip overseas is a chance to chat about the world with people in other countries. You know, Italians, they really love to be involved in some conversation from foreigners, especially from Americans. Coming up, we'll find out what people in Italy are talking about so that maybe you can weigh in, too. Unfortunately, though, the Italians are not seeing the immigrants who are coming in as a resource, which is what they are. And with the Italian birth rate being as low as it is, their economy is not going to survive without an immigrant population. We'll also look at visiting the great estate houses of Britain. They're open to the public. Among splendid sitting rooms and fancy gardens, you just might get to meet the master of the house. He's a delightful man. Always makes a point of coming and saying hello to visitors. And he's got knickknacks all over the place and that family tree for the dogs of the family. Eavesdrop on what's making news in Italy and visit the stately homes of England. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Anyone who's a fan of Downton Abbey will appreciate an outing to one of the great estate houses of England. Quite a few are open to the public, and many have events and exhibits throughout the year. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves... Two of our favorite guides from Britain are back to bring us tips for visiting the grandest mansions and gardens in England. For its own reasons, one of my favorite countries to visit is Italy. It's said to be home of half the world's art treasures. But frankly, I'd visit just to meet the people. It's hard not to love the Italians, and it's so much fun to get to know them. To do that, it helps to learn what they're talking about in the cafes and on the street corners. So we've invited two guides from Italy to clue us in. Tommaso Ponte was born on a small island off the coast of Sicily. He left for South America and Australia when he was just 18, and now he's a licensed tour guide back in Sicily. Tommaso's a frequent visitor to our show. Growing up in Cleveland, the immigrant stories Nina Bernardo heard from her grandparents made her fall in love with Italy. After several years in Naples, Nina now lives in Rome, and she's back to bring us a bicultural perspective on what's making the news, what people are talking about in Italy. Tommaso and Nina... Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was going to say grazie, but I don't know how to say for joining us. What would I say? Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Thank you for being with us. How do you say that in Italian? Uh, grazie per essere qui. Gra- grazie per essere qui. Grazie per essere qui. Yes. All right. Now, Nina and Tommaso, if a tourist wants to connect with Italians in their travels, is there something built into the culture that sort of lends itself for people-to-people connections? I think going into maybe any Italian bar in the morning now, for a breakfast. a bar would not be like a no, tavern. No, not like, not like an American-style bar. So okay. what we would call a cafe. Like a Starbucks. Like a Starbucks, yeah. where Italians are going for breakfast in the morning because they go, it's a ritual for them. And it's an easy place to go stand at the counter and get a coffee and then just engage with the person standing next to you having a coffee. Would that work for you, Tommaso? Yes, it can work. Also, Waiting uh, on a long line for a bus, this could be a good occasion, you know, to walk. And there are a lot of long lines yeah. that you'll be waiting. And so you're stuck in a line in Italy, and, and you're going to find lines in Italy because there's a, just a lot of people. It's a densely populated place on a train and yeah. a train station buying a ticket. Yeah, that is always, you know, a great way to interact with the other people. Is it polite for a stranger in American to say, ciao, buongiorno? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's polite. Actually, you know, Italian, they really love to be involved in some conversation from foreigners, especially from Americans, because they are always curious about the American, you know, customs, about the American taxation, about the American, you know, uh, breakfast, because we have that big stereotype about big breakfast in America, that we have small breakfast in Italy, you know, just a coffee, we go to work. In America, scramble eggs, bacon, and so we always want to interact, <laughs> interchange our, you know, our ideas. And I think in Italy, all you need is a few words to open a conversation. Yeah. So you don't have to speak Italian. If you can say ciao or buongiorno, Italians want to practice their English as well. And once they hear that you are American or whatever, then they are, like Tommaso said, very engaged. And so, Is there an easy way to say what's up or how are you? Or um, You can say come va oggi. Come va. Yeah, come va oggi. Come va, how are you today? Yeah, how are you today? And a lot of times... It's up to the American tourist to break the ice, I think. And then the Italian will think, oh, here I've got an opening, and we can get into a conversation. And as Tommaso was saying, there's a lot of confusion about Americans, and now they've got an opportunity to say, talk about this. 
Nina, what, what would be an example of something that an Italian would find interesting about an American to talk to? What's, what's curious? I think Italians want to know why Americans have chosen Italy as their travel destination. So they're very proud of their own country. So they want to hear from you. They want re. So they're they fishing want, for a compliment. Yes, exactly. They yeah. want affirmation again about why Isn't you've come it? here. Yeah. And if you can give them a compliment, right. why not? Yeah, exactly. This is the point, actually, because, you know, Italians, we have the American dream. Americans, they have the Italian dream. So what's wrong here? You know, we can interchange always our dreams. This is a good occasion, you know, to interact and to talk to each other. Okay, tell me, what is your life about, you know, in the U.S.? How is the economy going to Because US? we have a romantic idea about Italy, which is probably a little bit romanticized, and you might yeah. have a romantic idea about America. Exactly. And now, people to people, it connects. Yeah, this is a great way to connect each other, really. I think this this whole idea of getting together is is sort of built into the architecture of the cities because ever since Roman times, the, the piazza has been sort of the, the community meeting place. Absolutely, and the Italians are always outside, and so just strolling down the street or going into a piazza, you're always with other people, and so there's always an opportunity to stop and admire something and make a comment to the person standing next to you. It's an easy way to start a conversation. And my sense is, especially in a small town, these people have been hanging out with their schoolmates for 50 years. And here you are, somebody different. A little new blood. A little new blood from the other side of the world. And there's all this Hollywood sort of glitz and, and news and stuff. And here you are, you can actually talk to them about whatever they like. Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves are Tommaso Ponte from Sicily and Nina Bernardo, an American expat who lives in Rome. What are people talking about now in Italy? Well, the most important talk about Italy in this moment is the crisi economica. The economical crisis. Crisi economica. Yeah. Econ- you call it a crisis. <laughs> yes, economical crisis. Italians are melodramatic. Yep. So it's the economic crisis. Nina, how is the economic crisis hitting Italy right right now? I mean, we're coming out of it in the United States, you know, six or six years or so after yeah, the crisis. Yeah, no, Italy is in dire straits. And when I said the Italians are being melodramatic, it was a bit of an exaggeration in the sense so the that they cri- really are. the crisis are. is a big deal. Yeah, the crisis right is a big deal. But the crisis is a big deal because Italians have a lot of structural problems that they haven't addressed that haven't been addressed for decades mm. and they still aren't willing to address and that's just you know, I compounding this sense the issue. That there are some sacred cows that have to be dealt with all over Europe about um, benefits and about work hours and about um, job security and, and... I don't th- I know that's a lot of what you hear in the American press. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get the sense that in Italy and maybe Tommaso, I don't know if you agree or not, that that's so much the issue, but certainly in Italy, corruption is a big issue. Corruption. Mismanagement of funds is a big issue, mm. and maybe not so much about benefits that Italians get. Okay, so there's a determination to keep the social fabric of the community, not compromise that, but corruption is uh, a problem in many Mediterranean countries, especially. Yes. Tommaso, what do you think is the core of the economic crisis? The core of the economic crisis at the moment is the unemployment, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, especially young unemployment rates is very high in Italy. 45% of the young people, they don't work. This is a really a tragedy for the, for, yeah. the, you know, for the future generation. What's even tragic for me also is families that are well-off, that are well, have well-educated children, it's so bleak, the economy, that they hope that their, their child can get a job with the government because when you get a job with the government, you're secure and you can never lose that job. But, you know, also this situation is changing a lot. Because our prime minister, Mr. Renzi, said now the government should not guarantee the job, you know, to the young generation. So we should change. We should. I Can would people say, accept that in Italy? They must. Otherwise, this situation will be long, 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 long for more and more years. It want to change this situation. But I think this stagnation is part of the things. It's an Italian cultural issue that. Italians need to have that security, that job security, whereas in America we have a very different idea about job security. It doesn't exist here. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're right, Tommaso. This is one of those sacred cows that nobody is willing to address or give up. But it is one of the things that's ossified their economy in many ways, is that idea that you can get a job and then you will have it for life, whether or not you are a good worker or not. An American would take that as a crisis, but that they could work through and, and life would go on, whereas right. an Italian might be more devastated by Italian, it. I think, I think one of the things that they could address to get their economy going is making it become a more merit-based mm-hmm. um, system. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what the Italians are talking about these days. We're joined by Tommaso Pante from Sicily and Nina Bernardo from Rome. You know, there's a new pope, and I always find Italians are all uh, excited about what's going on in the Vatican. They used to have a German. Now they've got an Argentinian. What's the buzz? I think most everyone is in love with Francis. 
he you can tell if you go to the papal audience on a Wednesday morning. So the crowds that he gets are just much bigger than anything that Benedict was able to attract. Right. They love his new tone. He just has a much more human approach. Mm-hmm. People Benedict feel his warmth. Benedict was a little stiffer, wasn't he? A lot stiffer. More calculated. Yes. Uh, but you know what? I have a different idea. I think that all the job that Francis is doing, you know, was begun by, by the previous pope. By so, Benedict. Yes. The, the German. Exactly, ah, by the German. But, so for me, this is the idea. What he's doing now, Francis, was begun by Benedict. So he's following basically what Benedict... Of course, Francis has more charismatic yeah. as the charisma. Yeah. You know, Benedict didn't have this charisma. But this is because he was German. And, uh, you know, Francis is Argentinian. So, so there's a he's Latin. A you Latino. Can, he's a Latino. You, you can know? relate. Italian, <laughs> Spanish, Argentinian's okay. Exactly. A German in uh, the Vatican. This uh, is different. Exactly. And we have the example with uh, Merkel, no? Angela Merkel. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we have, a, they, are, they are exactly the same. So Merkel and, you know, and the Pope and, and Benedict from one side and, uh, you know, our Francie and the Pope Francis is on the other side. What's the latest in Italy with the Catholic Church when it comes to personal issues like abortions, birth control, and divorce? I think the point with Francis is he hasn't changed the line on what the Catholic Church is teaching on that, but he has made it, other things, a bigger focus. So he's talking a lot about poverty and income inequality and attending to the homeless. He's talking about immigration. All of these issues that weren't being addressed before, instead, the issues that were the hot-button issues were things like abortion and birth control. So I don't think Francis has changed his thoughts on, you know, the Catholic Church is against abortion and birth control, but it's not his main focus at all. And I think this is the the big difference between him and Benedict. And where I think I disagree with you, Tommaso, I think he's taken a totally different line mm-hmm. um, from Benedict in addressing issues that are really current and that affect a lot of Italians today. And those would resonate with young people more. Yeah. I think so. But re- regardless of your take on uh, Francis with Benedict, he is popular in Italy now. Yeah, he is very popular. I mean, he's, uh, I think Francis is more popular. You know, uh, you know what? We are having big changes in the church at the moment. And I think these changes is also thanks to the Pope. But again, I disagree with you about, you know, Benedict and Francis, because I think what Benedict did, Francis is continuing. I still have this idea. You know, I live in a small community, and the priest said that basically, a priest that, I mean, I talk with him, he said that all these activities that he's doing were encouraged by Benedict. So put Francis, in the, he, Benedict laid the groundwork, and yeah. Francis is moving on. Now, think, from your perspective, has Benedict just disappeared from the news? No. So he's still there? Does he make any public statements? Oh, You know what? I think he's there, but of, of course he doesn't want to appear to the public. Right. He's behind the scenes. So he's doing some work, I think, behind the scenes. So he's still part of the whole team. Yeah. Italy's challenges can seem formidable, but so are its people. And there's a lot more to explore as we hear what people are discussing in the cafes and on the street corners of Italy. Things like its always-changing political scene. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A little later in the hour, we'll get tips for visiting some of the most impressive and interesting manor houses of England. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what Italians are talking about. We're joined by Tommaso Pante from Sicily and Nina Bernardo from Rome. When I think of Italy, 
I got to say, I think of crazy government. I just think of every year there's a new prime minister or there's a new scandal or there's some buffoon in politics. And it's just remarkable to me that Italy cannot figure this out. Nina, what's your take on the political dysfunction in Italy? Um, it's remarkable to me as well that they can't figure it out. But um, their new prime minister is Matteo Renzi. So he was the very popular mayor of Florence, extremely ambitious and young, and got himself um, not elected because some people will call it a coup. Anyway, um, he is prime minister now, and he promised to make major changes and major reforms. Because so, I remember when he was in Florence as the mayor, he was the wonder boy. He was the wonder boy. And he sees himself a little bit, um, he has often been compared to Obama in the beginning. Yeah. And he sees himself as kind of the knight who's going to come in and save the day and make all these changes very, very quickly. And so he made a lot of promises in my first 100 days. These are the things that will get done. I think not one of those promises has been kept, but he's still out there. He's a positive force. He is. Hopeful. Yes. Given the uh, the disappointing past. Tomasa, what's your take on, on your new uh, prime minister? Well, uh, he did a good job at the very beginning, but now he's slowing down, I tell you the truth. Yeah. Because, you know, we were expecting more from him, especially because uh, he had a lot of enthusiasm at the beginning, but this enthusiasm is not there anymore. So I think, uh, you know, the situation will change shortly. I mean, Matteo Renzi will be in charge for another a few months, and then uh, we're going to have for sure some election because uh, the political situation is always uh, evolving or involving, I would say. Evolving <laughs> and involving. I think it's involving at the moment. It's not really evolving. Very good. <laughs> Nina, did you have a comment there? Oh, I was just going to say, I think one of the problems with Renzi and with any prime minister who comes in, whether you agree with their politics or not, is that they are dealing with such entrenched lobbying groups, unions, it's political is... parties that are just trying to hold on to their piece of the cake. And at all costs, they will hold on to their piece of the cake. So it's very difficult to reach any compromise or make any change. You know, last on my last trip to Italy, I noticed the political posters, and I saw men and women running for office. They looked like movie stars, and they, they just looked sexy and ravishing, and they almost present themselves as heartthrobs more than politicians. It's like a cult of personality. And so in Italian, they say that appearance is everything and substance is negligible. And I think that... That is very apparent when you look at their politicians. Exactly. You cannot dress making the cattiva figura. Cattiva figura is something that we don't want. So you must what does that mean? Cattiva figura. Uh, a bad impression in bad some impression. way. Oh, yeah. So you, yeah. have to make, you can't make a bad impression. So no. if you're going to be viable as a politician, you've got to have some swagger. You've got to, exactly. uh, if not, you've got to look good. You've got to, this is it, one of Matteo Renzi's strengths, is that he is extremely charismatic, mm. objectively quite good looking. Yeah. Do you ever wonder about just the idiocy of the Italian electorate? Um, I ask I myself to, I, that I, question every day. I hate to say <laughs> that word, but you get porn stars, you get Berlusconi, you get ditzy, you know, good-looking people that make a good impression, but they just can't function as a politician. And people vote for these people. Yeah, it's, uh, probably they have something that we cannot see. I don't know. They have some... They have something inside themselves that they can transmit to the people, and that's why they vote. But Italians have always been attracted by the show. Yeah. We're talking about 2,000 years of being attracted by the show, if you go back to... It, life really is a spectacle in Italy, isn't it? It's a, it's a fountain on a square. It is. I don't know if, it's dressing if up you and making the remember scene or the our listeners will remember the film The Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, that won Oscar for Best mm -hmm. Foreign Film. So this is such a perfect example of what is... A perfect moment in Italy right now. It's all about the show. It's all about yeah. the show. Nina Bernardo from Rome and Tommaso Ponte from Sicily are helping us peek behind the curtain of domestic Italian politics and telling us what their neighbors are discussing these days in Italy on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. And a listener named Gene is just back from visiting Italy, and he joins us on the phone right now from Glen Allen, Illinois. Hi, Rick. Yeah. Uh, I was very interested in your conversation because I just spent some time in Florence. I got to experience the Italian transportation three-day strike. Um, fortunately, I got there, but um, it really affected people, for example, um, in Rome where they shut down a lot of the uh, the public uh, exhibits and things like that. And then uh, I got a chance to uh, basically get a personal tour of Florence because the tour I was on, it was down season, so it was a one-on-one -on -one tour. And I got to spend some time talking with the locals. And they said very nice things about Pope Francis, and they said they really liked uh, Renzi, the, the former mayor of uh, Florence, but they were kind of disappointed in what he's done. 
the other thing is, is the shopkeepers are complaining about the raise and fees on postcard stamps where the stamps cost more than the postcard. So my experience is pretty consistent with what you guys are talking about. You were traveling in, where were you traveling in Italy? Florence. And did you, so, did you find people were generally enjoying life and in spite of their government, or were, were things grinding to a People were happy, but when you would have um, casual conversations with people, it was a topic of conversation that would come up fairly soon. So, um, you know, when you go Complaining. The they would be complaining to, about the government. Yeah, a lot of, lot of complaining. Um, and I kind of asked people about the strike, the three-day strike, because they said, you know, it's like, um, people aren't very happy with the government, are they? And they said, no, they're not very happy at all. So it was definitely a sense of, um, you know, there's change going on there and people are not are not happy about it. But as usual, I had a great time. <laughs> you know, one thing very interesting for travelers is we tend to go to the cute little towns that are affluent because of tourism, Venice, Siena, Florence. Uh, and I'm talking with two guides who are in tourism and their their work is booming now, I think, because a lot of people are traveling. But if you went to some little industrial town that no tourists go to, you might have a different sort of... Uh, a different kind of energy. Uh, Tommaso, are, are there depressed industrial areas of Italy that give you a different flavor than what a tourist might see? Yes, of course. I mean, if you go in the depressed industrial area, for sure you don't see the same vibration that you can see in the big cities. Right. I mean, vibration is the main word. I mean, tourist brings vibration to the big cities. When you're in a small town and you see a lot of economical crisis again, you don't see the same vibration that you can see. So there's a low economic metabolism. Exactly. No employment, no reason to be uh, entrepreneurial, uh, crippling kind of uh, regulations. Yeah, the red tape in Italy makes it so difficult. There are so many young people in Italy. They're so creative, but they're leaving to start their businesses abroad because it's so... It takes two or three times as long to start a business in Italy as yeah. it does in France or Germany because of oh. all the regulations and the red tape. The That's bureaucracy the bureaucracy is really incredible. That's why most of the people, most of the young people, they prefer to emigrate. I mean, we have now new waves of immigration to the northern part of Europe, especially UK, where we don't have a lot of bureaucracy. Of course, for us, the dream is to go to the United States where you have a zero bureaucracy, you know, but Italy, we have 100% bureaucracy. And that's incredible. It's impossible to start, you and, know. And the sad thing is from, from Italy's interest point of view, it's these are the hardworking, industrious, creative people that are just saying, I've had enough of this and they're going to go to Germany or England or the United States. Yeah. And Gene, they're leaving for economic reasons, not cultural reasons, and they're not happy about leaving. Yeah. They don't that, want to go. That's a shame. Gene, thanks for your call. Thanks. Tommaso, you mentioned people are, are leaving, but at the same time, people are coming in, and you've got a lot of immigrants. What is the immigrant situation in the labor market in Italy, and how does that impact local workers? This is a big problem in Italy. You where, know, where do the immigrants come from? Uh, they especially come from the northern part of Africa. They come from Libya. They come from Tunisia. But basically, they don't come from there. In general, they come from the central part of Africa or the Mideast, like Syria, like Iraq, okay. you know. And then the main port of embarkment is in Libya, Tripoli, where at the moment we have a big political, uh, confusing political situation. And then from there, they arrive to Sicily. And from Sicily, then, uh, you know, they are spread all over Italy. And the problem is that, unfortunately, we are surrounded by ocean. And we don't have a good system of, uh, of control at the bottom. Oh, because of, you have a long coastline, it's easier for people to come in? Yes. It's yes. impossible to control everything. Exactly. It's impossible to control everything. And also, in addition of that, the European Union uh, obliged us to take these refugees and bring these refugees to our country. Uh, oh, so had, the EU obliges you to accept these people. Yeah. And then yeah. when you become for, welcoming because it's the legal for, requirement, more people will come. Exactly, for humanitarian, you According know. to the Dublin Convention, where you land first is where you have to ask for asylum. So if they're crossing the ocean, Italy is the first landmass you come to. So, so you'll get more than Austria that way, and you'll be burdened then with more immigrants than Austria. Right. Yeah, but you know, we have a big problem with Malta. Malta is an independent country. What they do in Malta? They keep away the immigrants, and then they arrive to Sicily. So Malta, they don't want any of these immigrants at their home, so they send them to us. And this is a big dispute we have about Italy and Malta at the moment, because the very first land is Malta. Malta is so close to Libya. Yeah. So I think, the, unfortunately, though, the Italians are not seeing the immigrants who are coming in as a resource, mm-hmm. which is what they are. And with the Italian birth rate being as low as it is, their economy is not going to survive without an immigrant population. 
And this is a story that has repeated itself throughout history. And you can make a lot of parallels to the immigrant situation in the U.S. A lot of the job, you know, we talk about the high unemployment rate, but there are a lot of service industry jobs in Italy that the Italians aren't willing to do. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones the immigrants are doing. It's the same case in relatively wealthy countries all over the planet. In Germany, you've got all the Turks coming in. In the United States, lots of Mexicans. Right. In Italy, the I think Libyans. there are a lot of parallels to be drawn. And then uh, there's a place to revitalize the economy with a more constructive approach to immigration. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're, we're talking about what Italians are talking about. We're joined by Tommaso Pante from Sicily and Nina Bernardo from Rome. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Alice in Carlsbad, California, emailed us, and she wrote, uh, she spoke to several people on her last trip to northern Italy, and they're very upset about the south. Uh, and they say the people in the south are lazy and they don't pay their way. All they want to do is have fun. Uh, of course, in the north, they want to split the north off from the south. Tommaso, you're from the south. You've probably heard this story before. What's the sentiment in the north of Italy when they think about the south of Italy? Let me be honest with you. Yes. Okay, when a northern Italian comes to Sicily, in my case, you know, the southern part of, uh, of Italy, you know, they experience the first two or three days, uh, they are a little bit worried, you know? But at the end of the tour, at the end of 10 days or 15 days that they stay there, they say, you know what, Tommaso, we really envy you. We are really jealous about your life because you have a great life. You are so relaxed. You love your siesta. You have a great food, great wines. So really, this is the impression of a northern Italian traveling to the south. I mean, they change their idea as soon as they come, they visit us, and then they go back. So but have, isn't there a reality that you have a more enjoyable life and more relaxing, but you're also enjoying economic subsidies from the North who, where they work like Germans do? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't agree with that. Absolutely not. Because, you know... Um, there was a time when the roads in Sicily were built by Italian national taxes, which are mostly from the North. Not so anymore? Uh, well, we could have this. Mm-hmm. Remember that we, we belong to Europe, you know. Uh-huh. And most of our investments now come from the European Union. Okay. When we build infrastructure, we don't wait for the Italian money to build our infrastructure. We wait for the European Union money to build our infrastructure. Wow. You come to Sicily, you see a big motorway built, you see always the European Union flag and the Sicilian flag. You don't see an Italian flag. So I'm sorry, but... Interesting. When you see a new road in Sicily, (laughs) you see a Sicilian flag and a European Union flag. Exactly, the blue flag. Yeah. You don't see the Italian flag. So it means that European Union is helping us, not really the northern Italian. Okay, Nina, you're from the, the capital city, Rome. What's your take on that? I think there's always been this kind of animosity of northerners against the southerners. And I think there are a lot of stereotypes But I think now with the economic crisis, people are listening to a lot of this populist rhetoric, especially being spouted by the very racist, xenophobic Northern League, who looks at Southern Italians as immigrants and they would like to expel them from the peninsula as well. Or Um, break away and establish their own country. Or break away and establish their own country. But But that's pretty fringy. It's fringy, but they're also getting a lot of press. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I think, especially because there's an economic crisis, you want to look for someone to blame. For yeah. that. Well, that's a who, danger in Europe. They can look for their history. And, I think and there's, there's a danger. famous characters right. from uh, 70 years ago that capitalized on that. Right. And I don't agree that the southern Italians don't work as hard as the northern Italians. Is that right? There is less industry in the south of okay. Italy. More yeah. industry is concentrated in the north of Italy. But what they do, I don't think that they are less productive than the northern Italians. No. Again, these are stereotypes that people buy into. Right. Because you're predisposed to think that just because of, you know, movies you've watched or cliches right. you've heard or you've picked up. What is the latest on healthcare in Italy? There is, um, it's socialized medicine. So mm-hmm. everyone, um, there's a certain part of your taxes that goes into paying uh, for the system. They have made some cutbacks in the system because they've had to adhere to the austerity packages. So does it had work to make, for you and your family? Uh, it does work. And I think the Italians, I think that's one of the things the Italians are extremely proud of is the fact that they all have access to healthcare and it's a good system. Tommaso, what's your take on healthcare? Our healthcare system has improved a lot in these last few years. Uh, you should imagine that we have a new hospital. So we have uh, excellent doctors, actually. Most of our good brains, they come to the United States and they work to the United States. We have uh, many, many Italian doctors that they come here and they work here because they have a good, a better position here. In better. the United States? Yes. So you're, what, are you saying you're losing your good doctors to e- the United States? Exactly, because they find good working condition here, better working condition here. And they don't have the so-called baroni. What is a baroni? Baroni is a sponsor. So your dad was a doctor. He taught to the university. 
you will be a doctor teaching the university. So if you are a good brain, if you are very smart, but you are not a son of a professor in the university, you don't do the same career. A barony, like a baron, baron. and his son is going to be a nobleman also. Exactly. <laughs> That's true in every profession in Italy. <laughs> is that right? It's called having a raccomandazione, raccomandazione. so being recommended for something. So. That's what we're saying before about being, not being a merit system. It's still in Italy more who you know than what you know. Almost a caste system. It reminds me of, Very Italy, much so. of India. Very much so. Very much, yeah. Whoa, that would be discouraging if you had no fancy father. Yeah, absolutely. That's why most of the people, they say, okay, let's go, andiamo, andiamo to the United States where I have andiamo. A, andiamo, much better condition of living. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tommaso Pante and Nina Bernardo about what's going on in Italy lately. I'd like to close just by asking each of you for a phrase that sort of captures the time, the way people are feeling. Is there a phrase in Italy, uh, in the United States, somebody might say, follow the money, as if there's a sort of a money excuse behind anything. Nina, Tommaso, is there a phrase that comes to mind? That's a tough one. Yeah, it's very um, Well, I would say in Italian, chi tardi arriva male alloggia. Nina, can you translate yeah, for me? In English, we would say the early bird gets the worm. The early bird, and literally, what? how did you translate what Tommaso said? Um, the last one to arrive will sleep badly. Like, we'll get the, the worst bed. <laughs> the last one to arrive will sleep badly. Can you say that again, Tommaso? The chitardi arriva male alloggia. Wow. Very interesting. Again, thank you so much for giving us a little insight into what's going on in Italy today. Grazie. Grazie mille. Oh, mamma, mamma. Le notte mi han stregato il cuore, son felice sol così quando canto notte di do re mi fa sola si. How do you bring back memories from your travels? How about sharing the impressions and surprises you found in the form of a haiku poem? Details for sending us a haiku are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are a few recent examples we've received from our traveling listeners. Sarah Houston Toll of Dyersburg, Tennessee, shares this haiku about the frustration of air travel. Three-day plane delay. Honeymoon in Halifax. Could have just driven. Kim Everding from St. Louis, Missouri, sends us this snapshot of a morning in Ireland. Closed the pub last night. Husband hikes Wicklow alone. I sleep in the car. And Nora Sturgis from Baltimore, Maryland, shares a secret from her family's trip to Spain. Hertz never found out, driving through the Pyrenees, someone vomited. Tell us about your travels in a haiku poem. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And now, as they say, for something completely different, let's explore the elegant mansions that once defined the aristocracy in England. Many of them feature exhibits and gardens run by the National Trust. And others are private, but open to visitors by their owners from time to time to help them keep up with expenses. We'll look at some of our favorites that you can visit and take your calls at 877-333-RICK. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. A few weeks ago, we explored the English tradition of great gardens that you can visit next time you're in the British Isles. Some of the finest displays are on the grounds of the impressive estates and castles of the lords, dukes, and earls of British aristocracy. You might even recognize some of them as settings for British movies and TV shows set in bygone eras. To maintain these lavish mansions and grounds, many have been turned over to the National Trust. Others are still private, but open to paying visitors by their owners. Each one tells a story about a far grander and more class-conscious time in England's past. Roy Nichols and Jillian Chadwick are back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to help us find some of the most interesting examples of these grand estates that we can explore on our next trip to England. Roy and Jillian, welcome back. Hello. Nice to it's be here. It's a pleasure, Rick. So when I think of these grand houses, Jillian, in the countryside, would you call these palaces or manor houses, or exactly what are they? 
We generally call them stately homes. Stately homes. Uh, you can only have a palace if you're royal. And there's one other palace in the country. It's called Blenheim Palace near right. Oxford. And that's because it was given from a very grateful nation to the first Duke of Marlborough. And he built it, had it built. After uh, Waterloo, wasn't it? Uh, no, after the War of Spanish Succession. After the War of Spanish Succession. Yeah, okay. In the early 18th century. And the nation was so grateful that he was given a large amount of money to build a palace. So we have Blenheim Palace. Blenheim Palace, yeah. It's our equivalent of Versailles, really. And that's like the ultimate palace to see in the countryside of, of England, apart from uh, castles, I think. Yeah, except there are many that are just as grand. They're not called palaces, like Chatsworth. And those uh, are the stately Duke of homes. Devonshire, yes, yeah. Now, Roy, when you think about England, it seems to me there, there's still a heritage of class distinction of nobles and aristocrats that lives on to this day, even though the design of the modern society is not for well, aristocrats to be vast landholders. Well, obviously, the aristocracy still exists, but their role in society has been taken over as the movers and shakers of society and of the economic world by new political and economic dynasties. But yet, I think there is, a, there is a residue of that sort of class distinction. They still hang on to most of their large houses. Their estates are much reduced. And of course, after two world wars, the economy of these estates becomes impossible. But nonetheless, I think there is a reminder there. Just to keep them up, it must be quite expensive. To... Oh, tens and tens of thousands of pounds every week. Just to keep the roof from leaking and to Basic pay the taxes. Basic maintenance. Just maintenance, cle imagine yeah. cleaning the windows in somewhere like Castle Howard or Blenheim Palace. Mm. So let's talk about a few of these great houses. Where might you get a sense of the aristocracy to this day? Are there any that really give you a sense that would be good for visiting? Well, definitely Blenheim Palace. And one that's become extremely popular, of course, is High Clare which is the stately home used as Downton Abbey. Okay. So that's one of the places that everybody wants to go to. From a traveling point of view, uh, what's it like? If, if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, what do you actually see that you might see on the TV show and so on? To be perfectly honest, I've never actually been there. It's really difficult to get in. Demand is so high, it's difficult to get a place there. Roy, what do you know about well, ever since, as Gillian was saying, you know, being filming Downton Abbey there, ever since it's become famous in the States, you have to wait a year, 18 months in advance for a place to go and see it. So it's very, very difficult. You know, this Downton Abbey is just, it's just a phenomenon in the United States. Is it that big of a deal in Britain also? I think it yeah. is. I must be one of the few people that have never actually seen an episode <laughs> of Downton Abbey. But Gillian, of course, have you seen it? I have, yes. And uh, can you understand the the intrigue that it, it causes in the United States? Not really, no. Yeah. I think it's a bygone era, and I watched a couple of series, but now so it's I've probably, had enough it's probably of it. more exciting for Americans than yeah. English because you've grown up with it, and you're like, so what? It's yeah, just and we've had lots of programs like that, whereas right. Americans haven't seen so many programs like that. But they're obsessed with it. Americans are. I know, yeah, incredible. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the great houses of England. We're joined by Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. Roy, when I think about British aristocracy, I think of eccentrics. People who are, <laughs> if you could get a little look in their back closet, you'd find all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah, eccentric is such like a Roy. polite way. <laughs> <laughs> polite way of putting it. How can you enjoy the eccentricity of the English nobility with your sightseeing? Well, there are several places, and one that does come to mind is Stanway House that's owned by the Earl of Weems, who's, uh, in fact, it's a Scottish title, I believe, and he's he has a certain eccentricity. I think being an aristocrat and being eccentric go hand in hand. This is Stanway in the Cotswolds. Yeah, Stanway is not a town, it's a little village. A little tiny village, and it's uh, a and very it's a, small village. Well, it's that very traditional, it's one of the few last examples of what we would think of as a state village. In other words... There is a heart to the village, which is the big house, Stanway mm -hmm. House. And then all the people that work on the estate would live in cottages and farms as satellites I to the big house. I didn't realize that, you know, because I've been there a number of times and it's true. It seems like the entire village was built to support the, 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 big the mansion. House, yeah, yeah, the big house. And it's, it's not new because originally what became Stanway House was actually owned by the Abbot of Gloucester, I think. And it was a monastic settlement. And it, it sort of worked in exactly the same way. Now, the Earl of Weems is this, like, textbook example of the impoverished aristocracy. He well, owns, he's land rich, but it feels like he's cash poor. I was going to say impoverished is a... Is, yeah, you can't feel yeah, sorry relative, for him, even yeah. though he has patches on his old tuxedo. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect he, that's the way he wants it. But he's a delightful man. We've met him several times. And he's a very, very nice man. He always makes a point of coming and saying hello to visitors. 
Now, he opens his house up to the public, and, mm-hmm. and it's almost like the grandchildren of his grandparents, former peasants, are there welcoming the public and being docents in the different rooms around his house. Absolutely. Why does he do that, Gillian? Uh, it's just full of his little memorabilia, and one of my favorite things is the, oh, that chaise longue that's got wine stains on it by Chippendale. Mm-hmm. You know, he uses the furniture. He does. He's got that exercising would... chair. Oh, the exercising chair, yeah. And, he, and it, they didn't have treadmills back then, but you could bounce up and down on a, on a big spring. That's right. And he said it was, what does he say, it was good for his liver or something yeah. like that. And he's got knickknacks all over the place and that family tree for the dogs of the family. And you can go out into his tithe. What, what's the concept of a tithe barn? That's when uh, peasants used to pay a tenth of their, their stock every year, whether it was grain or whatever it was, and it was kept in a barn. It was stored there. So, so that was their this, payment to the Lord. All these wretched peasants all around yeah, in their little huts. And then he's got this incredible house, and he's got a big barn, and once a year, everybody brings a tenth of all of their mm-hmm. stuff and puts it in his barn. Yep. And today, the funny thing is, in order to pay his bills, he's got to open his house up to the unwashed masses and we yeah. get to go in and, and tromp through there and even look upstairs in his bedroom and As see Gillian what he's reading. As Gillian mentioned earlier on, it was the wealth taxes and the death duties of the post-war period that impoverished all these estates, and they all had to start opening up to the public. I do like Stanway House, though, because he still, to a great extent, maintains that tradition of a large estate, and he has a very strong commitment to the people who live and work on the estates. Mm, uh, I, I get yeah. that feeling that there is a solidarity there mm-hmm. and everybody's together. And he just is a genuinely good soul and at the same time kind of a quirky uh, I, I'm sure that so this. many of the large landowners, the aristocrats, felt totally and utterly removed from the people that work for them. But, he's but I, more connected. certainly he's certainly more connected. Nearby is another great house. It's just like in the next village in the Cotswolds, there's Snowshell. Well, Snowshill's owned by the National Trust these days, but mm-hmm. for decades it was owned by a gentleman called Charles Paget Wade. Now, he'd gone away to the First World War, come back severely mentally damaged, and essentially became a recluse, a recluse and a collector. And so he, fabulously wealthy and mentally damaged after the war with a big mansion. And what he does is start collecting, and he collects anything and everything, bicycles, kitchen equipment, garden equipment, paintings. There is hardly a topic that he didn't collect. It got to the point where every room in the main house was so full, he moved out to the gardener's cottage and then promptly filled that as well. All the barns, all the sheds, everything was full of it. And then when he died in the 1970s, was it Gillian, 1970s he died? He left it to the National Trust and they spent five years sorting the house out and cataloguing and putting it in some sort of order. I love the family motto, let nothing perish. Let nothing (laughs) perish. (laughs) That's true, I couldn't believe it. I'm going through all this. It's like the ultimate hoarder's house. Let's say you get that. Somebody who's really, really rich who's a hoarder. And then at the very end, you learn the family motto is let nothing Nothing perish. perish. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about great houses and eccentric wealth in England. And we're joined by Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Rebecca's calling from Birmingham in Alabama. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Certainly. Yeah. What's your experience with great houses in England or stately houses? Well, I've been to several of the ones that you've mentioned already, Lime Park and Chatsworth, and I was one of the lucky few who got to go to Highclere Castle, and it is incredible. I spent about a year over there teaching, and I lived in a small village, and there was a grand estate there that I really hadn't seen on many travel books, and I thought it was incredible. It's called Woburn Abbey. Oh, yeah. Woburn Abbey. Tell Mm -hmm. us about it. It is in Bedfordshire, and it is where the Duke and Duchess of Bedfordshire live. Their family has a very long history there. There was some sort of story that they used to be earls, and then one of them, the earl, was beheaded by the king for some sort of punishment, and then they realized they had made mistakes, so they made him a duke, and so the family after that became dukes. It's a huge estate. There is a deer park there, and they are known for, I think there are, nine or ten varieties of deer that they have brought in from different places in the world, and they're very involved in conserving some of the lesser-known breeds of deer. And are you able to wander through the actual house and get a sense of it? Yes, absolutely. They are not really open in the winter months, but in the spring and summer months, they're open a lot of the week, and it was probably one of the houses where I got to explore the most. You get to go through on your own pace, and there are volunteer guides in most of the rooms to tell you some fun facts. 
As an elementary school teacher, I thoroughly enjoyed the children's guide where you could search for things as you went. Queen Victoria stayed there at one point, and the room that she stayed in is still all decked out for her. And she even, as a thank you, drew some sketches for the family, and those are up on the wall. Queen Victoria drew some sketches. Now, Rebecca, when when you are going through these various houses and sites in England, you mentioned the volunteer guides in each room. I've always found that they are so eager to talk, and if you just want to strike up a conversation, you're going to have a fascinating insight into things you'd never appreciate otherwise. I fully agree with that. I enjoyed using the audio guides wherever possible, but the volunteer guides were definitely much more knowledgeable, and I could ask questions to them. Very nice. Um, and they were very passionate about where they were as well. So. Nice. So, Rebecca, that's Woburn Abbey. Yes, sir. And where is that exactly? It is about 45 minutes north of London. It's in Bedfordshire. Milton Keynes is probably the closest larger city near it. The Duke of Bedford. When I'm really tired, I always feel like I'm going to climb the, what is the, the saying? R- oh, the wooden the, stairs to the... Bedfordshire. Wooden stairs to Bedfordshire. Bedfordshire, that's yeah. it. Yeah. I find that so charming. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. I'm going to climb the wooden stairs to Bedfordshire. And that's where afternoon tea was invented as well. Afternoon tea At was invented. Warburn in... Abbey by the Duchess of Bedford, yeah. Well, that's one reason to celebrate Warburn Abbey right Absolutely. there. Rebecca, thanks for your and call. You can even have afternoon tea there. You can. Did you do that? Oh, multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> that it must be great. Describe what afternoon tea is exactly, Rebecca. Well, I believe it was invented by one of the duchesses there for that sinking afternoon feeling. That's right. As I understand it, they used to eat much later dinner meals. And so she and her ladies-in-waiting would have this afternoon tea. And all of the ones that I had were three layers. The first layer that you start with is little this finger is, sandwiches. This is the little trolley, that fancy, like, silver-plated trolley they bring in. It's got three little tables on it, mm. each one smaller exactly. than the one below it. Okay. The bottom layer is the first layer, and it is finger sandwiches, like cucumber sandwiches, or I think I had some salmon sandwiches and things like that. Nice. And then the middle layer is scones with clotted cream and jam. Mm. And then the top layer is some sort of sweet, like a chocolate candies or things like that. So you're down at one of those every afternoon, and you're going to have to buy two <laughs> airplane tickets to get home. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All yeah. right. Rebecca, that sounds like a, another reason to go to Woburn. I, I have not been there, and it's, I'm going to put it on my list. Thanks for your call. Certainly. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Jillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols are certified guides to the history and sites of England. They're sharing their recommendations with us now on Travel with Rick Steves for visiting the elegant estates that punctuate the English countryside. Patty's calling from Port Ledlow in Washington. Patty, thanks for your call. You're welcome. What's your what's the word again, Jillian, for these big houses in the countryside? Stately homes. Stately homes. <laughs> Do you have an experience with a stately home in England, Patty? I'd like to know if Chatsworth is open now because I've either read or seen it on TV that the Duchess had died and that they were closed. So is that temporary or? So this is the Chatsworth in the Cotswolds, right? Chatsworth. Yes. Uh huh. No, Chatsworth House is it's in Derbyshire. In Derbyshire. Yes. Yeah, in Derbyshire. Mm. No, the, the Duchess did die. She died in the autumn of 2014. And although the house probably was closed, obviously, in mourning for the death of the Duchess, they do tend to close in the wintertime anyway. Mm-hmm. And so they would reopen again, usually sort of Easter time, maybe March, depending when Easter is. And it would make sense they close in the winter if there's really not much traffic. Well, there. they use the time for refurbishment and, yeah. and cleaning mm-hmm. and all those other things. Very nice. Sure. Okay. And is that is that one that you would get tickets online for an, ahead of time? I think it is. Like a lot of them, you can buy tickets in advance. It's probably if you have a very specific time when you need to be there, then that's mm-hmm. the best way to go, Patty. Of all Thank these you. great palaces and houses that we're talking about, are there any that really do have a, a crowd challenge that you have to be concerned about long lines? I suppose Blenheim might be. Uh, not usually. Not usually. No, so you can so normally huge. just show up. Yeah, yeah the, and there's a lot of space. There are gardens yeah. and other things to do apart from the house. Oh, that's great. Patty, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. And speaking of gardens, when you think about gardens, ah, the garden at Blenheim is incredible, mm. the, the, the gardens at Hidcote Manor. Can you talk a little bit about gardens associated with these great buildings? There's so many different kinds of gardens. For example, Blenheim, they tend to be more formal right. in the French style. But then there's the wilder gardens of Hidcote. And wonderful place to visit is Highgrove, which is where Prince Charles lives. And there are special tours around the gardens with his private gardeners. 
Is that right? Yeah. With Charles' private gardeners? Magical. He doesn't do it himself usually. And that's also another one that you have to book in advance. It's quite difficult to to get into. And Roy, if you're thinking of gardens in England, anything come to mind that we'd want to... Well, I I do prefer the smaller cottage gardens. Mm -hmm. So if you were to go to places like Sissinghurst, which is not really, strictly speaking, a manor house these days Mm -hmm. or a stately home because that was destroyed in the 18th century... But, of course, this is Vita Sackville West's famous garden in Sissinghurst, and that's a beautiful garden. But there are other uh, houses. They can be divided between the big stately homes and the smaller manor houses. They do vary so much in size, and the smaller ones tend to have the smaller intimate gardens. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about grand English houses, palaces, manor houses, which come with beautiful gardens, and a warm welcome, in a lot of cases, to us travelers. We've been joined by Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. Just to cap off our conversation, Roy and Jillian, can you just share one special moment that might inspire us to get the most out of it, taking a little extra time when we're in England to check out the the grand houses? Jillian. Well, for example, in Blenheim Palace, the gardens there are so enormous, designed by Lancelot Brown, better known as Capability Brown, because he had the capability to transform the landscape. And if you can't walk all the gardens, you can get in a golf cart and you're transported around these beautifully landscaped gardens. Uh, a, a it's very just posh magical. way to do the gardens oh, yes. in a very posh sort of setting. Absolutely. Nice. And Roy? Well, one of my favourite houses is Longleat in Wiltshire, owned by the Marquis of Bath, who's the ultimate in eccentric aristocrats, uh, to the extent that he actually had an unofficial harem at one point. And you can actually go along to Longleat. There's a great lake in front of the house, and you take a Mississippi steamboat around the lake. <laughs> Talk about eccentric and over the top. Yes, it's very eccentric. And that's, long, where is that? Longleat in, in Wiltshire, just uh, sort of north and west of Salisbury. North and west of Salisbury. How far from London? Probably about 120 miles. All right. South and west. Roy Nichols, Gillian Chadwick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Gretchen Strout for reading this week's Travel Haiku. You'll find more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again whenever you like. Rick has also recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.